Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. America was built not just by its cities and its farms, but by its small towns, dotting the landscape and based on all kinds of industry. The question of how and why they declined and even died out continues to be discussed today, as well as the world of values, community, and wisdom they left behind. With me to discuss the past, present, and future of one such town is Dr. David Petrusia, noted historian of American politics and baseball, and author of a memoir of his hometown of Amsterdam, New York, entitled Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory, A Vanished World. David, welcome. Good to be here. So let me ask you the question I ask all my interviewees. What led you to write specifically about this, and certainly at this particular moment, given how much you've written about so many other things? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a story with a difference, and there were two parts to it. One is a very close friend of mine had been bugging me for years to write my memoir, and she said, uh, I just want to hear your voice in those words the way you write doesn't matter what you say and I begged off for years and years and said no one's going to want to you know read about this or what parts would I do or you know who would I offend etc 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 so a lot of of reasons and then I, I well and then the second part of the answer is that a couple years ago a very close friend of mine had a stroke and suddenly died and when he died I thought, you know, the stories die with you. So it was a, a two-part process. And then, of course, what part of my life do I write about? And I decided, well, I'll just cut it off when I go off to college. So it became something more than the story of myself. And I guess all memoirs are. You know, where I came from in upstate New York, where I came from... Uh, ancestrally being a Polish American the times I lived in um, and as you were talking about the rise and fall of American small towns and industry and all that so it became all of those things and, and a little bit more I guess and and that's uh, that's how it came to be very nice so Someone, uh, you're, you're at a lecture, and someone asks you to give, say, a, a brief description of what was and is Amsterdam, New York. Is it, is it its own unique thing, or is it like a, a symbol for the general story of uh, American, the story of American small towns, like, say, a lot of people talk about Appalachia today, or is it both? It's, it's almost, it's, it's just north of Appalachia. Um, which ends in, you know, sort of the southern tier, bottom half of upstate New York. And we're above that. And there was this belt, really, from Schenectady all the way, maybe the Rochester or Buffalo at one point, where upstate New York was the Silicon Valley of the late 19th century, the early 20th century. Uh, from GE in Schenectady all the way to Buffalo, but with stops like in, in Syracuse with the Carrier Air Conditioning Company or Rochester with IBM and Xerox. 
the shoe manufacturers down a little closer to Appalachia in Binghamton uh, and the Tri-Cities area there. And the Mohawk Valley, which Amsterdam is in, and which I still live very close to it in the valley, I think has been particularly hard hit by the the so-called rust belt phenomenon where you go from one town to another and it seems to for quite a while it seems to get worse and worse along along the valley towns which had a lot more population a lot more jobs a lot more prosperity are now really shadows of themselves and it began a long time ago their heyday was relatively short, I guess, and its decline is is now a you know approaching the the length of time that their their heyday was. So, in a way, it's uh, it's a town with a difference. It has its own unique aspects to it, but in others, it's it's emblematic of of a larger picture for the mill towns of America. One thing which uh, struck me while reading your book was that your part of the story, when you were born and you grew up, as you describe it, the town was had already, its best days were already behind it or about to be behind it. And yet, somehow, the community managed to live on, at least for another generation or two. And I was really kind of surprised, because usually the, the story is, well, it's all gone, and now everything collapses all at once. It sounds like it was uh, slower, at least, in Amsterdam. What happened was, well, the town, uh, the unique or almost unique part of, of the story, was that it was the carpet city, the rug city. This is, was the center, really, of American carpet manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And there were, by the 1950s, two big companies, uh, Bigelow Sanford, which was, had been an Amsterdam company acquired by a Connecticut company. And at the beginning of 1955, it just said, we're out of here, okay? Some of the jobs are going to Connecticut, but all the jobs are gone. You know, we're putting the mills up for auction, and almost nobody wanted the buildings. They went for a song. Um, and then the other company, again, locally based, the Mohawk Carpet Company. Now it's Mohasco. And they went out slower. But what happened is they lost a good oh, 10% of their population in, in the first decade, uh, probably a good b- bigger percentage of jobs. But Mohasco died much slower. Other industries had died before Bigelow Sanford or had been on, on the skids. You know, we made things like brooms and then vacuum cleaners came in. There was a big pearl button <laughs> factory, you know, <laughs> cut out of clamshells and they would dump all the, all the refuse or uh, cut out clamshells in the, in the, in the river. Um, and a lot of the advanti- advantages which built the town uh, had long since ceased to be great advantages the main thing was water power it's a very hilly town there was a big creek which went through it and that provided water power but then you get into coal and steam and electricity you're on the mohawk river but then the railroads come in and there are railroads all over the country and um so all your natural advantages fade and then you get 
foreign competition. You get, uh, you know, there had been a protective tariff building up these industries or protecting them, and that starts to slide after a while in the 20th century. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, and tastes change, technology change. So right. it's not just one factor. And then there are bad business decisions in the wake of the Korean War, where Bigelow Sanford says, oh, we need to stock up because there's a war coming. And this we, we've learned this from World War II. And in fact, they were fighting the last wartime economy. They didn't have to do that. And they found themselves with a stockpile of incredibly expensive Australian wool, which ship made them less competitive and was like uh, a nail in the coffin. And then labor disputes really starting up big time in the late 1930s with a new deal and then a big strike called the big strike in 1954 which was pretty much the last that that last nail in the coffin of Bigelow Sanford and so all of these things were um, contributing factors there was no one thing but then also the um, economic policies of the state of New York where it was no longer a great place to do business so even if Amsterdam had recovered uh, from a lot of those other things it was like man eh, we can be somewhere else and again technology by that time they had invented air conditioning and people could go south and did my relatives went to Arizona which is even hotter than Israel yeah that's a uh Definitely a very hot place to be. Um, actually, as a, a side question, I noticed that you didn't seem to have a hell of a lot of love for uh, Governor, Republican Governor uh, Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, and I thought I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate on that a bit, because I, I admittedly know very little about the man. Rockefeller, Rockefeller was a big deal, not only in New York State, but in nationwide in Republican politics for quite a while. I was raised as as a Democrat. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the there was a nat- natural antipathy. But his policies and you know, being a billionaire, he didn't quite understand the value of a dollar and he just thought he could build and build and build and spend and spend and spend. So we ended up with with higher taxes and sales taxes and and more things which would have to be supported later on locally by even more taxes. And and that is one of the things which destroyed the competitive nature of of New York State. New York State has never really recovered from the the Rockefeller era. And he was replaced uh, after he left... um, his, his administration was replaced by a Democrat named Hugh Carey, a Brooklyn congressman who had to pick up the pieces because it wasn't just that it was uh, a faltering economy. It was a faltering fiscal picture for New York State where the thing looked like it was about ready to go bankrupt after Rockefeller. So you, you had wow. all those factors which which made him not the most wonderful governor in the in the history of, of New York State. <laughs> in fact, one of the worst and and most damaging. Wow, uh, that actually ties into a, another thing that, that that really comes up also in your book is that 
whenever once once Amsterdam starts to go into decline, the various efforts that maybe uh, public authorities or private people tried to make to try and bring it back seem to have either done little or they even you know caused harm like they they helped too much if you will yes and that was in part um arterial systems which were to speed up traffic but there was nowhere to go um right and and then the uh urban renewal uh rockefeller was outmatched in spending at the point of the late 60s by Lyndon Johnson's, uh, you know, urban renewal projects. So hundreds, literally, you know, Amsterdam wasn't that big a city ever. It peaked at about 30,000 people. And then by the 60s, it was getting down to the low 20s. And they tore down literally hundreds of buildings in the downtown area and destroyed um, what was still viable downtown for a mall, an indoor mall, which uh, it didn't work. And the indoor malls of America are largely passe at this point, and they're empty or torn down, abandoned, uh, being converted into other things. And Amsterdam was one of the first things to go. And it's not an easy town to get in around in anyway, and the arterial system made it work. Even before the first carpet mill said adios, there were private citizens trying to raise money um, to keep the keep them in and would buy them a new building. Uh, and and they said no, we we don't want it. And then they would attract a num a bunch of lower paying jobs, basically sweatshops. None of them had any particular success. They might provide some jobs but nothing com comparable to anything that the carpet mills had done in terms of a you know uh, i wouldn't call it a middle class existence but a good healthy working class existence and mm -hmm. then you got then you had businesses towards the uh, oh towards the 80s which were just coming in and it was just pointless and and, and there were things that that should have worked or might have worked for a while um, some people might remember something called the Cabbage Patch Doll. That was made in Amsterdam. It was quite the craze, but it was like sort of like the pet rock or something. Everyone had to have one, like the hula hoop. Everyone had to have one, but that didn't last long. And that company went into computing very early. They created an Atom, a home computer, uh, but it did not work. Amsterdam just seemed jinxed where things did not work after a while. Speaking of things that did not work, uh, your your book ends with, as you said, you are going off to college. I don't recall you saying much about how it felt. You know, you'd grown up, you'd grown up your entire your entire life. You'd known that region. Uh, your relatives and family, or most of them, were there. Uh, you you were raised with Catholic school, and now you're the relatively small town kid. Basically, you know going to the big city and uh, some might say well you know you're abandoning us just like everybody else did was there any sense like that or did you say no you're a local kid and made good well the, the idea was being of an academic bent it had just been assumed from whenever that i would be going to college and you know my generation was 
a lot of the kids did go off to college, more, many more so than went off to the Army, which they probably would have done, you know, 10 or 15 years before that. Um, so colleges were the thing. Also, Nelson Rockefeller had created a state university of New York, and he took all the smaller teacher colleges and where I went, which was Albany State, which when I was, you know, when you say I, I was going off of, I was only going off about um, 30 or so miles down the road. I mean, it was mm-hmm. to a much bigger city, and it wasn't easy <laughs> to get to. But, um, and that had been built from a pretty nondescript small teacher's college into this huge new university. And he was doing this with three other university centers around the state, building other colleges or building them up, creating a network of, of community colleges. So everyone was going off to school. It was, it was the thing to do. Uh, mm-hmm. And also winning a, what they called a, um, a region scholarship, which not mm-hmm. too many kids won. But even though the tuition was low, and I couldn't have afforded to go to anything but a state school. Um, and I think a lot of my contemporaries were in the same boat. You know, it wasn't that I was the first member of m- any member of my family to ever go to school, um, but it was the first of my, my, my immediate ancestors, certainly. But um, it, it, it was a bit of a culture shock, but, and, and particularly in the 60s, I think with, with you know, the world opening up and everything, the, the world at your fingers of the Internet now, and, and cable TV and every other thing, um, the kids know more about what is what is going on with the world. Um, th- what I was thrown into was um, uh, the greater world of New York State. Not so much about Albany, but so many kids coming up from downstate, particularly mm-hmm. from, from Long Island. So the culture clash was not with Albanians or people from 30 or 40 miles down the road, but it was with uh, with the great big big apple and its environs. Mm. So uh, one of the, one of the things that you mentioned and which I very much appreciated was you're talking about uh, in in Amsterdam uh, how there was this tendency to replace uh, beauty with monotony. And people just gradually abandoned the old local ceremonies uh, that they used to have. Uh, you, you mention it, but you don't. Um, the first when it comes to the ceremonies, how how would you explain, say, that like I think you, there was one particular ceremony where you mentioned that you and your wife were the only people in attendance. How, how exactly does that happen? There's nobody else who wants to go to such things. The there was when I was growing up, the tail end, I would say, but it was still alive, of a very vibrant club life. We talk about social media, but we actually had real socializing back then. And the number of clubs that people belonged to, even when I got out of college and became active politically, you know, Mm -hmm. there were clubs, there were people showing up to the clubs, they were putting on events, which you do not see now. People just have have cocooned, as the saying goes, into their own homes on their, you know, if it's not a small screen that they're staring out of their 
of their phone to a 55 inch screen in the in their living room and mm-hmm. so our our really personal interactions have vanished also when you get people more and more commuting mm-hmm. as opposed to you know walking 20 minutes their job in the mill okay um or again the immigrant experience that many of the people whether they were polish like myself or italians or there was a fairly amount uh, a good amount of people from the british isles who had come to amsterdam as well Uh, Mm -hmm. and i'm not just talking about the irish we tend to forget that you know English and Scottish people came over fairly late as well. They were would be more skilled immigrants. Sure, they had less problems with the with the language. They had no problems with the language, uh, but they they were coming over as as well. And when they came over, they came. They almost transplanted their old neighborhoods and villages, so that many of my relatives knew each other not only from the neighborhood or from the mill but they knew each other from the village in in the old country in southern poland in the old habsburg empire and all these things are gone so to get back to your question a few years ago and it's maybe 10 years ago my wife and i go to memorial day uh the holiday commemorating the war dead in in america to the cemetery which used to attract big crowds when i was a a kid and the veterans would fire off their rifles and all the little kids would all the little boys generally would scramble over the shell casings as they were ejected from the the rifles the bolt action rifles and we went and we we were at the ceremony and we were the only people witnessing it um you know what was it there was a book out maybe 20 years ago called bowling alone okay mm-hmm. and think about what that conveys okay the old leagues the people hanging out together and now it's like you you do things alone and that's it's not a healthy thing either for a society or for individuals specifically entirely fair enough um it's interesting because uh, Nowadays, there's discussion uh, because of uh, because of uh, the corona outbreak and people being forced to stay in their homes due to health regulations, whether they want to or not. Uh, a lot of people are actually uh, increasingly thinking of going out on their own and maybe not working in factories anymore, uh, but working um, from a distance and maybe uh, moving away from the cities. Uh, and may, do you think that would perhaps help to revitalize some of these? Uh, yeah, these I think it. I think it anew? could. I think it could, and that's interesting because you've got people going in two different directions at the same time. You're working alone. You're working from home, so you're isolating from people. But on the other hand, if you're moving to these small towns. Maybe you're going to go to a town or a place where you are interacting more with people. On the other hand, you might be interacting less with people if you're abandoning the big city. But you might be working or interacting with people in a more meaningful sense than just you know sharing uh, the subway car with them twice a day. 
so it's 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 an interesting thing and we we are in a, a brave new world because of that and people are rethinking things like crazy and it comes you know this plague this virus comes at us at a very interesting time what if it had come at us at a time before you were able to do so many things virtually <laughs> i mean even if you were just just doing things by dialogue i up you know when i started working from home originally in the 1990s that's uh, what we had to do and that, let me tell you that was a challenge uh just getting a pdf made was a challenge uh but oh, now yeah. we have all these things at our, at our fingertips and if you had to do that beforehand you know i don't think you could do that and of course you couldn't do factory work or manufacturing work uh uh, from home to any any meaningful ex- extent. I mean, you had the piecework system in the slums of New York about 1910. Uh, immigrants working from their their tenements uh, um, and having to bring the work in later and be counted up. But uh, those days certainly were long gone, even when I came along. So, um, a lot of the book uh, is devoted. Uh, it's interesting. This is. The book feels like it's part narrative and part like a lot of different, very fascinating vignettes. Like I really enjoyed the story about uh, when you guys got to see Satchel Page, the famous uh, black pitcher. Um, it's full of uh, interesting, feels like it's addressed to people who are my age or younger, trying to tell us, you know, don't, don't be so quick to negatively judge the previous generations. Learn a bit from the wisdom that they learned. Maybe take some of it with you. Uh, perhaps I would reverse the question. Is there anything, say, that they could you know, go back in a time machine uh, to the 1950s and 1960s? you think there's anything that my generation could perhaps have t- taught in the other direction, or is it like all a one-way street? The older always teach the younger, and that's how it works. People were very hemmed in in regards to their possibilities. Hmm. I suspect there's still a lot of that today, among people of, of lower economic educational levels where it's like, okay, you're going to do history, you're going to do a, be a teacher, maybe, maybe. How do you go about that? And we really didn't know how to do that. We didn't know how many doors were open, how to get into a, a school and, and all that. The upper classes today or the middle classes know how to do that now uh the lower classes may not but we we certainly were were floundering as to how to make that jump from you know working class or in some cases you know once the once the uh uh, rust belt thing hit amsterdam the non-working classes uh in into uh stepping into you know, white collar type jobs and, 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 you know, jobs that required some sort of education and were, which were the social advantage or advancement that our, our parents and grandparents wanted for us. On that note, uh, so within the confines of, you know, the crazy different changing rules uh, of Corona, um, What's what's next for the book? You're going on a on a lecture tour or on a Zoom lecture tour? No, uh, I've I've come up with <laughs> I've I've written another book, 
and oh, yeah? we are we are trying to which I won't say what it is right now because we haven't we haven't engaged a, a publisher and okay. uh, so but uh, we have that and we're sort of on tenterhooks wondering <laughs> wondering what the future will bring in that case and then when that happens of course and because I've done it in a, on, on, on spec, sort of defying the, the normal ways of doing things, um, mm-hmm. is to uh, then there's going to be a, an editing process. So you want to keep things available for that. But you know, I'm sort of toying around with you know what what the next idea might be after that, and that's it's very hard. You know, it's you, you come up with an idea, and then maybe you junk it, or your agent says no, or the publisher will say no, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, it's it's almost harder to come up with the idea for the book than to write it. You know, mm-hmm. once once it's like, okay, this is what we're doing. Uh, you know, okay, we're going west to Oregon. Okay, so <laughs> okay, now we figure out how to do that, as opposed to we're going. Somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know. Before, otherwise, you could end up in Israel. You don't know. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Well, I look forward to uh, reading that book and also perhaps speaking with you in the future uh, on other issues that you've written. Uh, and I definitely look forward. I hope that the book gets published and we hear what the subject, the secret subject is. A secret, the secret sauce book. Yes. The secret sauce book. David Petrujo, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.